We're talking, though, first in the show about what is happening with the RCMP in Surrey, the future of policing in that city, and specifically taking a look at some numbers that are a little difficult to get a hard grasp on. Joining us to talk more about this is Rob Gordon, Professor of Criminology at Simon Fraser University. Rob Gordon, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Joe. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon to you as well. I know we've talked about this a lot and the arguments for and against RCMP, for and against regional policing, but this is specifically looking at the numbers of police officers, of RCMP officers, and the force in Surrey not disclosing that number at this point. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I I quite frankly don't understand why they would not. Um, I've read the accounts that they've given, uh, one of which, of course, is, well, we don't want to give away operational secrets. Um, We don't want to let anybody who shouldn't know exactly how many police officers we have on the street. I mean, all of that is is sort of RCMP paranoia. And I I find it somewhat predictable, but also very disappointing. Uh, They just um, uh, don't really, seems to me, they don't really understand uh, the concept of accountability and uh, community openness, uh, but would rather just try to conceal information. Now, I'm not sure what lies behind this, whether it is some tussle going on um, in, within Surrey, within the politics of Surrey, or quite what it is, but it's not helpful when you're trying to understand uh, the scope and uh, nature of policing within Surrey itself. You need some numbers, that's for sure. And I understand, too, and the reason given is that we don't provide numbers for operational purposes from the RCMP, which, <laughs> I mean, we run into that, and, and it makes sense. If you're talking about, say, uh, the Stanley Cup is coming or there's a big event coming and there's going to be policing, I would understand in that scenario police don't provide numbers for operational reasons. They don't want people knowing how many officers officers are going to be policing that particular event. But that seems a lot different than giving us an overall number of the force. Uh, Yes, and quite frankly, I don't understand why they would not provide information about how many police officers are on on the street dealing with a a major incident. Um, It's a a thinking that is somewhat antiquated, and I just don't get it uh, anymore. Uh, I mean, if it's a, a specific operation and there's a need to keep the size of particular units um, uh, undercover for some reason, um, then okay, fair enough. But they use the excuse on operational needs and uh, so forth uh, far too often, and it, there's no justification to doing it. Quite frankly, Joe, I, I, you know, I just can't understand it. And, and the the um, there should be it should be uh, the information that that's being sought should be available to uh, whoever's in charge of a particular shift. Um, they would know exactly how many uh, folks they've got on on the road uh, at any given moment. Um, and uh, one thing that strikes me is that this is some kind of attempt to conceal how poorly police a particular area is, that they just don't have, have uh, the operational police officers that they should have uh, working in a particular area at a particular time. So there is some underlying reason 
and the the BS that gets pumped out from the RCMP um, public relations uh, group uh, doesn't it doesn't wash with me, and I don't think it washes with many people, quite frankly. Right, because the, your, the, the line of thinking there being that if every area was sufficiently policed and everything was going great, why wouldn't you talk about it? But it would make sense <laughs> yeah. if there are areas where it's lacking, maybe you don't want that information out there. That, that's right. So I would always, I would always tick the negative box. You know, that there's some, there's some embarrassment in giving out the information. Um, they just simply don't want to uh, have that information subject to scrutiny by outside people, uh, whoever they may be. The excuse that they don't want to give this information away because the bad guys will use it is just it's, it's really it's really silly. And, and it's not something that's ever been shown to be an issue. Um, and I think, quite on, frankly, on balance, public exposure is much more important than the police concealment, uh, especially police concealment without a, a rational reason for doing it. At this point, the Surrey Police Service has now put out numbers of their current staffing levels and where they stand. It took a while to get those numbers as well. I guess is the question there, uh, if if the transition does go ahead and goes through, that the Surrey Police Service continues answering these questions when asked about the number of officers? Yeah, I I mean, if you compare... uh, this this debacle at the moment with what goes on in normal policing situations, um, so just take the Vancouver Police Department, for example, if they've got uh, a question that's posed to them about how many how many men and women they have on, on the road at any given moment, they if you can give them the moment, they should be able to tell you. And I, I never get the sense that the VPD is reluctant to provide that information just because it's something that the public need to understand. Um, and it, if it is the fact, it's the case that there are too few police officers on the road at a given moment, then okay, you can use that uh, as an argument for asking for more resources if you can find the standard. Um, the problem is finding the standard. I mean, it's, you, there is no hard and fast rule about how many police officers you should have prowling around in the particular area at a given time. It's just, it's not that easy to do. So what police managers usually do is say, okay, I've got this shift going out. This is the area that they're going to be covering. Um, This is the number of people on average who we think ought to be uh, doing that, the policing, um, and move on. I mean, it's, uh, and if, if they think that they don't have enough, then okay, you go back to the police board and say, we don't have enough. We were short-staffed on this particular occasion. Uh, I, I rather fancy, though, that in the Surrey context, what I'm doing at this moment is stepping into the, a boiling pot. Mm. And it, it's not <laughs> something that's very comfortable. <laughs> I don't... I don't quite. I just hope that they get this stuff sorted out quickly for the sake of the people in Surrey and also the surrounding areas. I mean, it, it is just, it's a farce. And, and I'm disappointed that the provincial government, which has responsibility for policing, ultimately responsibility for policing in a place like Surrey, right across the province, 
I don't understand why the provincial government is not stepping in now and saying, okay, enough's enough. Um, the people of Surrey need to have proper policing. It's going to be affecting uh, policing in the surrounding areas. Surrey is not an island. Um, it is part of the metropolitan area, which brings me to my usual drum. Um, but I won't beat it right now. <laughs> but it, 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 they need to understand that what goes on in Surrey and the deficiencies of policing in Surrey um, create a knock-on effect to the areas around them, particularly coming in towards the city. So, um, you know, particularly in Burnaby and, and New Westminster and those those places where policing is also stretched. Now, if they've got a deficient system operating in Surrey for whatever reason, um, it's going to be felt uh, by police officers trying to do their job in Delta and other places. It, it's, uh, uh, it's gone on long enough now. There needs to be uh, some provincial involvement in this. Uh, do you think as well this kind of lack of transparency or, or not saying how many officers there are employed in the Surrey RCMP detachment, does it show again how the RCMP answers to Ottawa, whereas a civic force would be more accountable to the people of Surrey? Oh, most certainly, yes. Um, I mean, that, that argument has been uh, passed around for a long, long time now, uh, and all sorts of excuses are manufactured to um, you know, to basically uh, support the idea of there being a continuation of the status quo. Um, it, it is an absurdity. Uh, and they'll say, oh, yes, but, you know, the, there are advisory groups from, uh, from the city that help the RCMP detachment in Surrey to do their job. And, yes, fair enough. But it's not the same as being accountable to a police board um, whether or not you have the mayor involved is another matter, but to having a police board uh, that represents people in the community um, and being able to say to those folks, this is what we're doing and why we're doing it, and for those people on the police board to be able to say, well, we have concerns about this or that or the other. I mean, it, without that element, you've basically got a bunch of parachutists coming into an area and just... Uh, doing what whatever they think is appropriate for that particular area. And th- this is one of the big problems with having uh, RCMP uh, involved in, in municipal policing. Um, they were never designed to do this. Um, and it's just that politicians and policymakers, particularly politicians, have been have lacked the courage to be able to step up and say, you know, enough, uh, we need a different system of policing. Now, fortunately, um, there is this all-party uh, committee that was struck by, um, by the provincial government, and they've produced a report that highlights a lot of these problems. Um, whether there's any action that comes out of that or not remains to be seen. I do hope there is. All right. Well, we will see uh, when we hear from uh, the Public Safety Minister. Rob Gordon, as always, great to chat with you. Thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome, Joe. 
Thanks so much for being with us. Well, the B.C. government says the speculation and vacancy tax is generating millions of dollars and is doing exactly what it is supposed to do, increasing the amount of affordable housing, getting more rental units onto the market. So is that actually the case? And what else is happening with that tax? Well, Sir Somerville joins us now, a professor of real estate finance at the UBC Souter School of Business. Sir, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Jill. When we look at this government announcement talking about what success this tax is, bringing in uh, just over $78 million, the government says, in 2021, and that that money is in turn helping to get more affordable housing, what is your response to that? So, you know, I think the focus on the revenue is is somewhat misplaced, right? The, the real goal of the of the tax is to get units that would otherwise be vacant um, and bring them in either to the ownership market so that, uh, you know, local folks can, can buy them and, and live in them or to rent them out. And I, so I, you know, the, the tax is, is the stick and it's just a case of people who uh, choose not to uh, rent the unit out or not to sell it um, who end up paying the tax. Uh, and, and then when you look at uh, that side of it, you know, it's been successful over time. Uh, it continues to be successful. The number of units uh, that are subject to the tax continues to decline. So that's really the objective. And, and declining then, but I guess, do we know if the number of units is declining because people are, are simply selling them because they don't want to pay the tax or they don't want the hassle of it or that they're actually being rented out? Yeah, so you can track over time on a unit-by-unit basis, or at least the government can, right? You can't do it without access to the data. You can track over time which units are being uh, rented out and which units are being sold. But again, if the unit is sold and then bought by a local resident, that's still a a positive, right? Because it means that for a given amount of demand, there are more units available for local residents to purchase. So I think the government has focused on the rental side. Uh, you know, if all the units that people were paying the taxes were, were sold to local residents and people lived in them, that would still be a plus, right? Right. I, I guess that was the number, though, that kind of stuck out to me was when they talk about the raising more than $78 million in 2021. And of that, it was about $45 million uh, um, of that money came from foreign owners or, or satellite families. It seemed to be that, that number seemed high, I thought, because we had been told before that foreign ownership, even though some would like to point to that and say that's what's causing housing affordability to be out of reach for so many people, that that wasn't a huge factor. Well, so, I mean, the the fact that they're paying the largest amount in tax is in in some sense a function of the tax rate, right? So satellite families and foreign owners pay a, um, a higher tax rate than Canadian residents do. So, you know, so for the same number of units, you'd raise more from them just because they pay a higher tax rate. And then they typically own more expensive units. Right. So, you know, the revenue, you know, the revenues uh, are higher in part because of those factors. But even if you look at the unit counts, the, the largest numbers of so of vacant units are by foreign owners. And then satellite families, by definition, even if the you know, family members are living in the units, the the way a satellite family is calculated, it's because that household has the majority of their income earned outside of Canada. And that's kind of addressing the people live here, but don't pay tax here problem.
Right. Okay. Uh, and when you talk about that, that if, if it means that if these units are being sold and if people are buying them to live in them, then that's good. That's actually what the tax was designed to do. Uh, makes sense if people are can afford them and are purchasing them as homes. But if they're then renting them out, to say, uh, to and, and putting more rental stock on the market, that's also great. But if we're talking about studios and one bedrooms that are going for 2000 to 2400 a month, it doesn't really fall into the affordable housing category. Yeah, so like I, my calculation here wouldn't be that, okay, oh, we're getting affordable housing directly out of this. Um, but in general, the way economists look at this, and even if, even if you're increasing the supply of, of higher end housing, uh, that still tends to generate benefits across the, um, the unit spectrum. And the, the way we like to think about this is imagine that you sort of had a, had a high-end unit. Well, who moves into that high-end unit? Well, let's say somebody moves into it, but the unit that they were in before wasn't quite as high-end. Well, they moved out of that one, and it frees it up. So there's sort of like a chain of, of occupancy and moves. And you know, data that's been, been studied on this for the U.S. finds that even when you get units, new, new units built at the high-end, you still generate um, additional vacancies even at more affordable levels. So, you know, that that positive benefit that spreads there, but it's not like a one-for-one kind of effect. What about the areas where the tax is applied? As far as we know uh, where it is now, greater uh, Metro Vancouver, greater Victoria, uh, places in in Metro Vancouver, Kelowna, Kelowna, Chilliwack, West Mm -hmm. Kelowna, it's going to be expanded in January. And some of the places I know Squamish has been talking about this. Squamish will be included as of January. Some other places on Vancouver Island as well, Lions Bay. What are your thoughts on the expansion of the area? I, you know, I, I think that the government is, is going to be in a, a it's a trickier situation when you're expanding it in those areas. Um, maybe not so much Squamish, but if we sort of think about those areas broadly, they're areas that overlap a little bit more closely with locations where people are having vacation homes because they're they're sort of vacation areas. Right. Uh, and. Uh, so the, the ones I like to pick on for this are the ones in the in the in the island because you know things in the Cowichan Valley those are also vacation homes for people and the vacation sort of economy is an important part of the local economy and so there is this sort of almost push and pull right which is those areas can have housing challenges but if you then limit the ability of people to have vacation homes there you are impacting the economy more than you would say necessarily in a, in a fully urban area like Vancouver, Victoria. So there, the, the, tr- there, there are more trade-offs there um, when you look at the tax because the, the, it's not just um, housing affordability that is the only factor in, in play. Right. And, and places then, like you're, you're saying, that do have housing, a housing crunch in that workers, for in many cases, find it very difficult to find housing. Uh, Squamish would be in that scenario. Uh, even, right. say, the southern Gulf Islands, even Bowen Island, which I think if they tried to bring it in in those areas, there would be a lot of pushback. Yeah, because but that, that's where they have there's a if I think about what the, the, the spec tax is for, it's really, it, it's much more for the urban areas. It fits more, more readily in there. And when you're looking at these, these areas, it just becomes a little bit more dicey to get the, the right mix and, and have the sort of right determinants of where the tax should go because you have 
uh, areas, you know, let's where you've got local residents who are working, but you also have tourism as a more important part of the economy. And the second you have tourism as a more important part of the economy, there are people who are going to want to have vacation homes there. Uh, you know, I, I, I offer the sort of the, the Gulf Islands as the example of this. Like, well, Salt Spring Island, well, folks who live on Salt Spring Island, housing is really challenging for them there because, you know, so many properties are people's vacation houses. On the other hand, if they didn't have the vacation houses there, you wouldn't have as much of a local economy, right? Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I guess that's what the question comes down to, like you're saying, like you're saying then, how much is that economy or that vacation part of the economy? And, and is the tax there to raise revenue or is the tax there to free up housing? That's right. And, and I, I haven't studied the, those particular areas. So I don't have the answer for, for what's the right determinant. I think Squamish is a little easier um, because it, because it's moved into being more of a bedroom community than it once was. Um, right, and, and but, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even people in Squamish have been asking for this, saying that that it would that it would help to have it in that area. Yeah. And what about, though, is it is there room for some improvement in that ever since we've started talking about this, there have been properties that have been caught up that really shouldn't be subject to this tax. And I think of the Belcara cabins that can't be rented. They're not heated in the winter. And people saying, wait a second, these are our family cottages. They're not even rentable. Yet here we are paying tax on them. Yeah, you know, I, I think you have that example. I, I think the more, you know, Upsetting examples are, are situations where people, because of dynamics with their family, they end up getting caught up. You know, their parents were in a in a unit for a while, but then because of medical reasons or COVID or whatever, they had to be in there longer and it violated some of the conditions or someone where their partner, you know, got stuck outside the country because of COVID and couldn't come back. And therefore they had, they violated the satellite family income uh, rules. So, I, you know, that, that makes me feel like there there's more space, I think, for trying to do a better job of understanding exemptions or creating creating some kind of review panel right. for folks who, who are falling through the cracks. So that's not really what the tax is about. You know, I think the, the Belcara thing is kind of just sort of a, a, a kind of weird, unusual outlier. So I, I'm not I'm not that worried about sort of those units so much as I am about individuals um, who their circumstances got them caught up in this in ways that that's not the intention of the tax. Right, and that you should be able to go to some review panel or make your claim or show that you're not doing yeah. this, you don't, you are not falling under the category of, of who this tax is aimed at. That's right, you know, and you get maybe a year's, you know, leeway or something like that. I don't, I don't know. You know I, those, are, those are, you know, uh, design issues that certainly are, are not in the space that, that I as an economist really operate, right? Absolutely. All right. Well, sir, it's always good to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jill, even though you did do it in the middle of the Canada's World Cup game. <laughs> hey, the fact that, that people agreed to come on while the game was on in itself, I will forever be grateful. Well, I am sitting in a classroom with the uh, game on the full screen, the, the big screen in front of me right now, because I actually uh, canceled class today. Oh. <laughs> well, and you didn't even sound distracted. That is multitasking at its best. Yeah, well, you know, I've, I've had kids, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, even more so, thank you so much then, uh, no Sewer, for coming Bye, on Jill. the show.
Well, if you have put off buying a new vehicle, you are not alone. A new BCAA survey shows the high cost of living in this province. Well, that has some BC drivers keeping their vehicles longer and instead of getting a new vehicle, investing more in maintenance and repairs. This was a survey done. It was conducted for BCAA by Leger. 70% of the drivers say the high cost of living and economic uncertainty has them keeping their current vehicle for much longer than they had planned and investing in those vehicles, even if money is tight. So what else did we find out from this survey? Keith Berry joins us now, Regional Manager for BCAA Auto Repair and Maintenance. Keith, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, Thanks, Jill. I appreciate you having me on today. Well, I guess not a huge surprise that people are hanging on to those vehicles a little bit longer, but how important is it or what are we seeing as far as uh, people making those investments so you're hanging on to a vehicle that's not breaking down all the time? Yeah, I, I think it's not a surprise to many of us with the cost of inflation and just the general lack of supply of vehicles that it's becoming more important to keep the vehicle you currently have in working condition. I think we've all experienced going to the grocery store and seeing, seeing the sticker shock. You're seeing the same thing with used vehicles where they've gone up in price 30 to 50% over the last 12 months, which is just an astronomical increase in the cost of a used vehicle. 30 to 50%. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we have people who have come in and they've said, a vehicle that I bought two years ago, I'm selling for a huge profit now when they're getting rid of their vehicle. I mean, people feel almost guilty about it because they're like, the vehicle isn't worth that, but that's what the market's bearing right now. Which is so bizarre when you think about that, especially if you've purchased a new vehicle. Remember, everybody always saying that the minute you drive it off that lot, you can feel the hit of the depreciation, but not so right now. Yeah, you actually have cases where people are buying new vehicles and turn around and selling them privately for a profit right away because sometimes the wait on these vehicles can be anywhere from six months to two years. So if you're in need of that vehicle and willing to pay a premium, people will buy these vehicles, turn around and sell them for a profit right away, which I've never seen in 20 years of the automotive business. No, that's uh, what a, a strange scenario for sure. Um, for mm-hmm. people that are hanging on to their vehicles, though, or, or having uh, trying to get as much life out of their vehicles as they can, what are the top tips then as far as maintenance and, and making sure you're doing everything you can to keep that vehicle operating? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the old adage is, you know, a bit of prevention versus a pound of cure. This is exactly what we say in the vehicles is that the big thing is do your regular maintenance. Make sure you come in for your regular oil changes. Get your fluids dealt with, your your belts. This isn't really exciting stuff to talk about with people, but this preventive maintenance goes a long way. Get your battery checked, your brakes, all those kind of key essential things. And when you're noticing any kind of a noise startup or a problem, feel a shake in the car, Unfortunately, cars don't fix themselves, so you don't want to wait for it to get worse. Bring it in then, and hopefully it's just a quick, easy repair versus letting it balloon into something more expensive. Uh, you mentioned belts, and that's something that I know if you, if you don't look after that, if that's something that breaks, it can be a huge repair. But it's also something that you don't think about as much as, say, tires or an oil change. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's a, it's a key essential. Most vehicles have a one belt to three belts, but typically it's one. Um, you know, the belt itself isn't expensive to replace, but if that belt snaps when you're driving, you lose all your power, unable to continue, things of that nature. Needless to say, your day gets a lot worse really quickly when that happens. And what about the year of the vehicle? If we're seeing people hanging on to their vehicles a lot longer, is it the, the, obviously the older the vehicle, the more repairs or the more issues you can expect with it. But how does that also impact cost? Yeah, I think once you get a vehicle over about the 10-year mark seems to be sort of the, the mark in the industry of anything past 10 years, you're going to start to expect a little more maintenance as time goes on. 
to their traditionally the balance of, well, is it more expensive to keep my old vehicle versus buying a new one was a lot less clear. But now with new vehicles gone up in price as much as they have, and used vehicles being uh, gone up as much as they have, the price of maintaining your vehicle really is a bargain at this point. Uh, you know, a belt replacement can be 100 to $150. Well, that's, that's not even a rounding error on a new vehicle nowadays, right? So the amount of money you spend in maintenance and preventive maintenance is just really good investment for your dollar, especially when your vehicle now has gone up in value so much with the price increases. And that actually seems really low, the 100 to $150 for, uh, mm-hmm. for, even, for getting that done. But you're right. What a uh, comparison to if you actually let it go. Yeah, exactly. It's the old adage, you know, just take care of it when it's small before it gets big. And I know it's easier said than done uh, for a lot of people right now. It's pretty tough times. And with the, the looming recession, there's a lot of people watching their pocketbooks and their bank accounts doing a little more than they have in the past. But there becomes a point where you have to do the calculations of what I use my vehicle for. And um, we have found internally and through the survey, a lot of people rely on their vehicles for medical appointments, for work, uh, kids, daycares. Vehicles really aren't optional for a lot of people, unfortunately. So it's one of those things where you want to maintain it because as soon as it gets broken and down note, you're out more time and more money than just doing the simple repairs. Uh, we often see on the traffic reports as well, and obviously it gets a lot more attention when it's uh, attention when it's on a bridge or somewhere because it stops traffic. But we hear about vehicles that are stalling or have stalled. What causes that? A really common issue with that one is when the weather changes. Um, as soon as you go from either the hot summer towards the cold winter or the cold winter towards the hot summer, it puts an extra bit of strain on your battery. So quite often your battery will fail around that time. And, and that's why we always suggest to people when you're getting your oil change, make sure your battery's getting checked. At our automotive centers, we check it by default. We make sure your battery's in good shape. We give you a printout report so you know where it's looking at. But that change of weather can really affect it. And again, a battery isn't a major purchase, but when you're on the side of the road, it sure seems like it. The inconvenience of being stuck there and having going out, it, it's just not worth putting off the repair. Some places will check that automatically, some don't. So again, be an advocate for yourself and ask them, hey, can all my vehicles here, can you please check my battery and just ensure that it's got good life to it before I continue my daily commute or work or whatever you're doing with it. And if you do have kind of the old, uh, the traditional vehicle, the, the combustion engine with the battery and you are getting it checked, what, what's the lifespan or how long could you expect a battery to last, generally speaking? If you're getting a battery with a vehicle, say you purchase a new vehicle off the lot, anywhere from three to five years is pretty normal for an OE battery. The aftermarket ones tend to be a lot better. There's several brands out there that have good reputations and good life to them, but most will come with a three-year warranty um, up to a six-year. The one we sell, we go for a six-year because we replace so many batteries on the side of the road. Uh, people up north, uh, down to the lower mainland. There's such a variety of climates in BC, as we know. We make sure that we put a battery in, we can stand behind it for a full six years. And does it matter as well, we're talking about the weather changing, and obviously it's a bit of a soggy week this week, but with things getting colder, what about vehicles, say, is there a big difference if you park on the street, you park outdoors, as opposed to parking underground or in a covered area? It won't in most areas of BC. If you're on the island or lower mainland, the um, the weather just doesn't get cold enough to really impact it. If you're more towards the interior, northern BC, it will. The benchmark is usually about minus 10 to minus 15 is when you really want your vehicle plugged in to help it start easier. If you're anything above that, you typically you're fine outside, aside from just getting a little bit wet, getting to your car. <laughs> All right. Um, you mentioned this as well, to kind of listen to uh, the, the, the knocks or the different things that your car might be telling you that it needs some maintenance. Do you find a 
as well. People uh, to to get that relationship with a mechanic or to have a mechanic that you you have to trust, obviously, because not everybody knows how their vehicles work and what exactly is wrong with them. What about that kind of finding a trusted mechanic? Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I always say to people, find a mechanic you're comfortable with and a shop you're comfortable with and stick with them because it's important that they get to know your driving habits, what your car is. Uh, I can speak for our teams. We know the vehicles probably better than we know the people. Uh, a car will pull in with like, oh, I know that car. I've done this in the past. I've worked on this. So they had this concern. That's really important because not unlike going to your doctor, you got to advocate for your vehicle. You know it better than anyone does because you hear it day in, day out as you're driving along. And you want to be comfortable that when you bring these concerns up to your mechanical center, they're going to take you seriously. They're going to listen to you and investigate it. But also when they find things, you really want to know, is this in a repair that has to be done right now? Is it a, a midterm repair as in like I can wait two or three months? Or is it, well, your brakes are getting low, but you probably got a year left on them. A good shop should be giving you those types of warnings and that type of detail. So you're not surprised. Your brakes don't typically wear out in a really short period of time. So if you go in and all of a sudden they say, hey, your brakes are due today, I would argue they haven't done a great job of preparing you for it because what we'd like to do is ideally give you that six-month to a year window to say your brakes are coming due for start preparing for it because, again, brake jobs like everything have just gotten more expensive and you don't want to surprise people with a bill on that day. Right, or even tell them your, your mileage is at this, you know, you've know, you got this much more before you need to take a look at this again. Yeah, that's exactly it. And then, you know, make make notes on that, put some details in for the customer. The reality is the majority of people aren't mechanically inclined or educated, nor do they need to be. That's the point of a good mechanic and a good shop. They'll be your advocate and help you understand the technical side of the business to say, when we say you need your transmission fluid flushed, here's why. If we say you don't need it, here's why. Um, there's still a lot of people who come and ask about tune-ups in cars, for instance. We don't really tune up cars anymore. That's kind of left over from an older generation of vehicles, but there is still maintenance that needs to be done. You're Coolant needs to get flushed on a regular basis, depending on the vehicle, transmission fluids, belts, all those types of things that need regular maintenance. And your shop will help you navigate that to sort of make sure we're not spending too much of your money when we don't need to, but taking care of the things that are critically important. And just getting back uh, quickly to what you mentioned as well about the price of used vehicles and how much uh, they're going up. But is it because of kind of the supply chain and what we're seeing uh, with the microchip shortage and all of that? Or, or do you anticipate that we're going to see that, that scenario where, where they are so expensive for, for the foreseeable future? Well, I think like everything, once the price goes up, it really seems really slow to go back down. Things to get tend to get more expensive a lot quicker than they get cheaper. I would suspect that the um, the supply issues they're having in building new vehicles won't get fixed anytime soon. Uh, for instance, a couple of vehicles that Ford have made, and they've said they're, they have literally fields of brand new vehicles that will be there for two years waiting for chips to get put in. So when you're waiting that kind of time frame, that's just going to put downward pressure on everything. And I don't think that's going to go anytime soon. Will it even out eventually? Probably, but it could be three to five years before you see that. All right. Keith Berry, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it, y'all. Thank you. Well, I think if you were asking somebody what they know about sextortion or kids, especially teens, being targeted online, you might think of the Amanda Todd case. But unfortunately, there are other cases and oftentimes a lot of misunderstanding or misinformation about what grooming actually looks like and who these predators actually are. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this is Tiana Sharifi, owner of Sexual Exploitation Education. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Oh, it's a pleasure to be back on this show, Jill. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to, and I know you are going to be talking to and have been talking to a lot of parents. What do you see as, as the most kind of misunderstood idea or, or misinformation out there when it comes to teens being targeted and groomed? I think the one thing we're seeing right now, and I'm hoping that there's more public awareness being raised about it at this point, but the one misconception is that only females are being victims and can be victimized um, by these sex orders. Whereas the reality is, especially in the last year in Canada, most extortion cases are actually happening to young males. Most of them are. Yes, I, uh, I think they actually looked at um, all the statistics from the last year and of the cases where the gender was known, Nine out of ten times, it was actually a boy who was being sexploited. And and how is this happening as far as they're kind of a common MO of, of these predators online? Or what are we seeing? Yeah, so we have a variety of different ta- tactics. The one that we're seeing most commonly being used is the bait video. So young boys will think that they're speaking with a young, attractive female. They'll be asked to switch platforms to some kind of a live streaming situation. And then they will essentially be watching a pre-recorded video of a female taking her clothes off and will be recorded without their knowledge of them doing the same thing. And so afterwards, of course, that person comes back and threatens them, blackmails them with that pre-recorded video or with that recorded video um, for either more money or for more content. And I would imagine there are a lot of cases where once a teen realizes or whoever it is that's being uh, being uh, targeted, once they realize what is what has happened, there's probably a reluctance to tell people about it. Very much so, especially with the males. So, you know, what we're seeing is because there is a lack of normalizing um, boys also being victims of sexual predation, there's a lot of shame surrounding boys who do experience extortion. And uh, we do see a reluctancy. However, with the education that we're doing within the schools, we are finding that boys are now feeling more comfortable to come forward and to seek help as well. Well, that is good. That is good. I mean, not good that this is still happening, but better right. that, that people are talking about it. Uh, Can you talk about the predators as well? And perhaps people will conjure up an image in their minds of who this is that maybe isn't all that accurate. Yeah, I think interestingly enough, regardless of the generations, we seem to have still the same stereotype in our head of that predator being somebody who is older, who appears to be very creepy and very obviously a predator. Um, Whereas what we do find in Canada is that the average age of these kinds of exploiters is only 24. So we're looking at somebody who's much younger and just really honestly, the, the reality that somebody who is a predator has predatory behaviors that have probably been present their whole lives, right? And so with all of these predators, most of them being much younger, um, it's much more youth-friendly, and a lot of these teens are unaware that even a 5- to 10-year age difference would be a red flag with somebody that they're speaking with online. Because 24, really, if you're talking about the average age, 24 just does not seem that old. Definitely not, no. And I think that's, again, that's a little bit of a shift in mentality and and shift in language that we need to start using with the kids is that instead of using the word predator, because that does create this um, stereotype picture in our head that is not as accurate, it's more about what are some predatory behaviors. Is the account that you're speaking with a healthy or an unhealthy friend or follower? Um, Because, again, Somebody who is predatory in their 60s didn't just magically become predatory when they turned 60, right? That was a part of their behavior from a younger age as well. 
And with so many things being done online and gaming and all of that, uh, how do you kind of balance or make it so so kids, preteens and teens can participate in this and do this that, that they enjoy doing, uh, but are also safe and can kind of pick up on those signs or, or know when something just doesn't seem right? Yeah, so I think a lot of that, again, comes down to using relatable and accessible language. So especially with what we're doing with schools, we're talking to kids about what are some unhealthy um, friends and followers? What do they do? What do their tactics look like? Um, looking out, we, we give a particular acronym that kids can be mindful of. We call it SUS. Um, so just looking out for anything, any account that is offering them any kind of stuff, whether that's fake modeling gigs or money from a sugar daddy or... Um, you know, gaming tokens, for example, any kind of unusual age difference. So if you're under 18, that would be the five to 10 year age, uh, age gap. Um, any kind of sexual conversation within 48 hours of connecting with an account and then switching to a different platform. So someone asking you to switch to Snapchat or switch to some kind of a live stream situation. So if kids are mindful that these are the red flags of an unhealthy predatory account, then you know, they can define anybody as that when they're online, when they're gaming and when they're interacting with people. And what about the use of cameras and that or if somebody, say, doesn't makes a point of not putting their face out there or you don't have a face that goes with the the name with the account? Um, So in that kind of a situation, again, you know, I think that kids are being very mindful these days about not putting their personal and private information out there. But In an ideal situation, yes, we would want to not have all of our details on the internet and on social media. Unfortunately, is that incredibly realistic to expect of our teens when they're on platforms that encourage that type of behavior and that normalize it? Um, I wouldn't say particularly, but again, if kids are, if, if they're, if they know that it is okay if they're ever in a situation where they need help. If they know what the resources are out there and they know the red flags and warning signs, then they're much more likely to pause for a second, um, to take, take a step back and contact the trusted adult. And as this becomes, uh, unfortunately, we're seeing more of this happen, but because there is so much more that's happening online and so much so much more kind of integrated games and things happening, is it, as far as kids are pretty savvy when it comes to, to tech and, and yeah. doing this, I mean, are they getting the message as well then? They must know that, that once that image is out there, once that video is out there, it, it, you have no control over it. You know, I think that I think a lot of them are aware that somebody can screenshot your image. But at the same time, particular platforms, they they have a really great way of making our psychology believe that we're safe. So, for example, on Snapchat, you have a for your eyes only folder, which would just be your own private content. And that in itself makes kids feel that they're safe. But one tactic that some sex orders are doing is actually hacking into that folder. Um, a lot of kids believe that if something is live streaming and you're speaking to somebody live, that you could not be recorded without your knowledge. So again, it's just taking a step back and facilitating to them that no, nothing is fully permanent um, and really walking through the steps of what this looks like on different types of platforms. And what do you tell parents then or guardians about this, about kind of walking that fine line between being the overbearing parent that just doesn't understand what teens are going through and being the parent that makes sure the teen can talk to them and is is staying safe? 
Yeah, so you have two different sides of the spectrum, which both would not be as beneficial for kids. One side of the spectrum would be the parent who is very worried about their kids' online behaviors um, to the point that they try and monitor their teens online consistently. And unfortunately, we've learned and we've seen that it never works. Kids, especially right now, there are apps out there that can actually hide a lot of their content under the, um, you know, under the, the image of a calculator, for example. So that in itself does not allow for a safe, secure space for teens to come forward. And then on the other end of the spectrum is the parent who believes that it can't see their kid. Their kid knows better. Um, you know, I have a son. These things don't happen to boys. So that kind of mentality in itself also teaches our kids that we're not a safe space to come forward to. So the balance there would be having an open conversation with your kids that, you know, the Internet gives you access to a lot of different types of people. And as wise as they are, they might come across an account that might not be healthy and something might happen that they might not be comfortable with or okay with. And for parents to communicate that they are a safe space to come to, that the kids will not get in trouble for coming forward, um, and that there is help out there. I think we just need to normalize the conversation. Is it a safe assumption that if you are spending a good amount of time online, you are going to come across one of these accounts? Uh, personally, having done research and, and having these fake burner accounts, I would say yes, um, very much so. I mean, we find that at any given time, there are 750,000 of these predators online looking to connect with minors actively. Um, and this was from the UN back in 2021. So I would say, yeah, the more kids are online and the more platforms they're on that are popular, they are very likely to come across those kind of accounts. And so we want to build resiliency factors for them being able to identify when something feels not right. And and where does law enforcement play a role or come in, or do they at all in that? Is there just too much of this and that, that people need to keep themselves safe and, and understand what's out there and protect themselves because really the chances of these predators being caught is pretty low? Yeah, you know, it is it is quite difficult. Um, it, it is incredibly difficult to get search warrants with IP addresses and how they change, especially with platforms like WhatsApp, for example. That being said, um, especially with sextortion cases, I think as we've seen, especially with Amanda Todd cases, that it's not impossible. We definitely don't want to give the message to kids that once something is out there, it's forever permanent because that in itself creates a level of hopelessness. We do have technology now that can actually track um, if there's an underage photo or, uh, you know, child sexual abuse materials out there. We have technology now that can actually track that, um, even in the dark web. So there is help out there. There are resources. Yes, it is much more difficult um, to reach out to law enforcement and have some kind of a positive result. However, it's not impossible. And one other question, and you just made me, me think of this as well, or when you were talking about the screen grabs and, and kids sometimes not thinking that that would be possible, are predators manipulating images as well and putting things out there that aren't even the legitimate thing that maybe they captured? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, so what we find is that it's about 30% of the time um, from particular statistics that we found in research that we've done. We said it's about 30% of the time these predators will lie about their age and what they look like. However, most of the time they actually are not. Um, it is their image. It is somebody who is who seems to be the average type of person that would be around 18 to 30 years old. Um, so, yeah, that definitely does happen. But again, it can look like anybody. 
All right. And I understand, uh, Tiana, that you are doing an online session or a session uh, this evening. Uh, Where can parents find out if they want to perhaps take part or learn more about this? Yeah, so the parent session tonight is actually organized by the North Vancouver School District that's contracted us to educate uh, district-wide the the students in secondary schools as well as the parents. So um, it is through their uh, parent organization we're doing a a virtual um, parent district-wide parent session tonight um, through the North Vancouver School District website. All right. Well, thank you so much. Great information and uh, explanation of what's happening out there. Tiana, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks, Jill. Have a good day.